This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Dell for Entrepreneurs is here to help your business scale faster through technology. Reach out to startups at dell.com for a free IT consultation. From laptops and desktops to servers and cloud, Dell Technologies is there for you. Up today, how to win when there are a thousand players in your market with Adam Blitzer, EVP and GM at Salesforce Digital Marketing Cloud. So when the world zigs, zag. This was a great tagline. It was a really famous ad campaign from Levi's. Uh, and it was related to black jeans. Now, I don't necessarily endorse uh, black jeans. You know, maybe you want to look like a caterer or a waiter or something like that, or valet attendant. But it was a really famous campaign. And those words actually really tie back to the idea of asymmetry. When everyone is doing one thing, think about doing the opposite. Uh, and in a lot of cases, this can be a really powerful force in business. So we'll walk through you know, a few different ways that we thought about asymmetry. The first was geography. We were in Atlanta. Uh, we weren't in the hotbed of startups. Atlanta has a thriving startup ecosystem today, but it certainly didn't back in 2007. So we thought, how do we use Atlanta to our advantage? One of the questions we used to always get from other founders you know, who, who were like intrigued by us starting a B2B marketing company in Atlanta, they'd always say, like, how do you hire anybody in Atlanta? And we would kind of scratch our heads and say, you know, I know this may come as a surprise to you, but we have books in Atlanta and some of us can read them and they're not even actually all colored in yet, which was uh, actually a joke from our, uh, our former head of sales used to say that all the time. It is an amazing, amazing hotbed of talent. You have Georgia Tech in the city, you have Emory in the city, you have Duke and UNC nearby. You know, it's essentially the capital of the South and a great collection of talent uh, assembles there every year as colleges graduate. So if you can become one of the top employers, you're going to get your pick of people. You're going to get extremely, extremely talented people. They're going to be incredibly loyal. It was also insanely cheap from a commercial real estate standpoint. You know, we, because we were hiring, because we were expanding during a recession, we could basically be anywhere we wanted. So that was our office, right? Almost right from the beginning. It was kind of insane. It was the 34th floor of a 34-story office building in Atlanta, which today is actually Salesforce Tower Atlanta. We got that space on the top floor initially for $4 a square foot. So not $4 a square foot a month, $4 a square foot. And we grew into it over time. But because we were scrappy, because we were able to take someone's sublease that was sort of you know, imploding at the time, we were able to get it essentially for nothing. We also took the company that was in there. They had about 150 employees. We had 20. We took all their furniture for a dollar. So it was like 120 Herman Miller Aeron chairs. It was like 120 steel case desks. You know, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of furniture, but expensive to get rid of. So if you can zig and zag and be comfortable with subleases, you know, you could really kind of get this amazing space that looked out over the whole city and became a real weapon for recruiting. Our timing uh, also coincided with the rise of web conferencing. This was when GoToMeeting, WebEx, et cetera, were sort of coming into their own. And it became much more common to do inside sales, the rise of the BDR and inside sales rep. So it meant we could have junior sales reps in Atlanta selling as effectively as an outside sales rep used to do. 
Atlanta started also to become a hotbed of B2B at this time. So we had a good local base to sell into because we were targeting B2B companies. And Atlanta also had a very mature email marketing landscape between MailChimp and Silverpop and many others. Uh, so there was good talent to draw upon. We also had very asymmetric funding. So Marketo, one of our competitors, wound up raising over $100 million. Eloqua, at least $40 million. HubSpot, $100 million. We spent the $8 we had on our domain name, right? And then another $150 on that horrendous logo. But we were very asymmetric in terms of funding. And this will play out in terms of how all the exits worked in a bit. But it just meant that we had constraints around the company. We had to run things very differently. And this is a little bit similar to, you know, almost how Toyota, for example, thought about the Prius when they were making the first mass market hybrid. They came up with the price point first. We want to deliver a hybrid for, you know, X amount of dollars and then work backwards. How do we fit into that? So we built a business where we said, you know, hey, we have certain constraints on the business. We want to sell marketing automation for, you know, $1,000 per month. How do we engineer the business to be able to do that, knowing that we have no funding to fall back on? How do we get paid up front? How do we incent reps to sell the right kind of deal? How do we support it, you know, in a very frictionless way? But we looked at our funding as a constraint. We let our competitors spend most of their funding to build that market that was still very evangelical. We also thought about product incredibly asymmetrically. You know, this ties back to funding a little bit. When you have less funding, you know, you're certainly going to have less firepower for engineering. You're going to be able to, you know, not go nearly as far in the infinite backlog of things that you could possibly want to build. And so you can be really opinionated about product and actually say, you know what, I'm going to think about having less firepower, not necessarily, you know, as a disadvantage, but I'm going to actually put a stake in the ground and say, hey, that's actually how we're going to build the product. We're going to let our competitors go all the way on the flexibility side of the spectrum. So if you think of the spectrum of ease of use and flexibility, you can really only be one or the other. You can be somewhere you know, on this spectrum. You can't be in multiple places at once. If you are ultimately flexible, you can't be super easy to use. If you're super easy to use, you can't cover every possible use case. It just tends to be how products work. So by the time we'd started, Eloqua was already very focused on the enterprise. They were sort of, you know, hunting elephants, right? Marketo was a little bit more to the left, but kind of still trying to chase the enterprise. And so we thought, hey, we're never going to be able to meet the needs of that enterprise. We're kind of unfunded. We're doing things remotely. Enterprises have very different expectations. Let's go as far to the left as we can. And so let's put a stake in the ground and say, hey, we're going to be fast time to value we're going to be easy to use. We're going to have a simple user interface. We're going to have less functionality by design, right? But that's going to be a feature for us rather than a bug. And so it meant, you know, our R&D could really be focused on the UI. It could be focused on getting people up to speed quickly, wizards, out-of-the-box templates. We could spend a lot more on support and services to get people up and running. And we can really build the whole company around this idea of easy. Now, Later, sort of after our market played out a little bit, another player, HubSpot, would emerge. I purposely don't have them on this slide because in the time it sort of took us to get to exit, we weren't really competing with them. That sort of happened later. But HubSpot would actually come even farther to the left of us. Um, and so there continued to be sort of these asymmetric moves. But we were all at different places on this spectrum. And it wound up actually carving out different parts of the market along this exact spectrum. We also thought about corporate culture very asymmetrically. Because we didn't raise money, 
we controlled the company, right? We could do literally, you know, whatever we wanted. We could run the company exactly, you know, sort of how we saw fit. If we wanted to slow down, we could slow down. If we wanted to speed up, we could speed up. That's sort of the beauty of things when you get to some scale and you are still bootstrapped, you're still owned by the employees. And so we had competitors that were just hard charging, you know, were known for being very, very strong sales cultures and could be a bit of a grind as they were on their IPO paths. And so we swung completely in the other direction. We said, hey, let's run the company with a simple rudder. Let's run the company by being the best place to work and the best place to be a customer. And those are purposely in that order. We thought if you're not the best place to work, nothing else is going to matter, right? If your employees aren't excited every single day, if they're not mission driven, nothing else is going to matter. So that's the first rudder. Every time we make a decision, is this the best place to work? Then is this the best place to be a customer? We're not talking about growth, profits, anything else. If you get those two things right, the business is going to work. We also thought about our core values, and this is how we hired. Are people positive? Are they supportive? Are they self-starting? You're going to have a ton of ups and downs. You want people in the trenches with you that are positive. Are they supportive? Is everyone willing to pitch in to do whatever they need? No one's ever going to say, I'd love to help, but that's not really my job. And are they self-starting? The space basically didn't exist yet. We were all figuring it out. We were hiring people that had essentially no experience or very little experience because almost no one had experience in marketing automation. We needed people who could dig in and figure it out. And it paid off for us. We had essentially zero employee attrition throughout our journey. Very, very, very little attrition. And you know what we're most proud of is we were able to become the best place to work in Atlanta for our category the year we were acquired. We were able to be the best place uh, to work in Atlanta the year after we were acquired, speaking to the continuity of culture. And then the Atlanta office of Salesforce, which really had that kind of Pardot DNA, a couple of years after that was the best place to work in Atlanta for its category in terms of large companies. Colin Powell has this great quote, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. And that totally played out for us. Anyone we had would work five times as hard as normal because they were just having so much fun. They believed they would bend over backwards for the customer. My co-founder, David, would often say, corporate culture is the only sustainable competitive advantage that's fully in the control of the entrepreneur. You can't control anything else. You can completely control your corporate culture. Now, I mentioned asymmetric funding. This played out in very asymmetric exits. We went out to raise funding because we just, we thought you were supposed to do that. So I think we were at, I don't know, maybe 5 million in ARR. We had good product market fit. We did it the hard way, right? We hadn't raised any money. And we went to Sand Hill Road. We talked to tons of VCs about raising money. And when we met with Benchmark, we got to meet with Bill Gurley, who is a legendary investor. And we were really surprised what he told us. He said, you guys would be crazy to raise money. Like, I wouldn't raise money if I were you. And we thought, what? What are you talking about? And he said, do the, do the founder math. Said, you know, you guys, your employees, you own the whole company today. Let's say, you know, someone buys you for $30 million today. Would you be happy? And we're like, yeah, do you have your checkbook? Uh, he said, okay, let's say you go for another year and you sell the company for $50 million. You, you guys still own the whole thing. Would you be happy? And we're like, yeah. He said, okay, so you're sort of playing with house money right now. You have three competitors that have raised a ton of money right? They're playing a very different game than you are. There's something to be said for all this optionality. There are a lot of companies who could do a $30 million acquisition, a $50 million acquisition, a $100 million acquisition. Then it starts to get really hairy. 
and the number of possible acquirers starts to get really small. And he said, now play this out. Watch when some of your competitors IPO, and maybe IPO at close to a billion dollars uh, in terms of their valuation, but maybe they own 10% of the company. You guys play this out, you sell the company for $100 million, but you and the employees own the whole company. It's exactly the same outcome, and you're probably going to have a lot more fun along the way. It was pretty amazing that just a couple of years after that, the market played out almost exactly as he called it. Now, you'll have to put yourself back in time a little bit. Today's valuations are incredibly frothy. But you know, back in 2012, we were still kind of coming out of this great recession. Valuations were really depressed. So Eloqua IPO'd and their valuation you know, was less than $400 million when they IPO'd. Uh, and you can see you know, the remaining co-founders ownership stake of it. We sold the company right, you know, basically the month after that, we sold it for close to $100 million and our employees owned the whole company. Marketo would IPO the next year and still under a billion dollar valuation. And you can see the CEO's stake in it. And then HubSpot would IPO the year after that, still under a billion dollar valuation. Now, of course, after these companies IPO, different things happened, right? Eloqua would ultimately go on to be acquired by Oracle. Marketo would be a public company for a little bit, be acquired by Vista Equity. HubSpot would do phenomenally well as a public company and continue to execute. So things all change from here. We're just sort of talking about that kind of initial liquidity, often that founders think about, you know, at the time of exit, whether it's an IPO or an acquisition. So four companies wound up doing well. They wound up doing well very, very, very differently from one another in this space. And it was very asymmetric. So everyone sort of ran their own game. We ran the most different game uh, from these other three, and it wound up playing out really, really nicely for all of our employees. We made tons of mistakes along the way. I have this quote at the, at the bottom to show most mistakes are totally fine as long as they're not the last one, right? As long as they're not the fatal one. Savielli Tartikova was a great, great chess player in the early 1900s, and he says the winner of the game is the, one, is the player who makes the next to last mistake. Now, the good thing about bootstrapping is you almost can't make a mistake that's big enough to kill you. You don't have enough money to throw at a really, really bad mistake. But some of the mistakes we made, you know, early on, we had no contracts. We had the SaaS model, monthly billing, monthly contracts, month to month, which is just, in retrospect, pretty crazy, right? You do not give yourself a lot of time for an enterprise even though we were simple enterprise software to get someone up and running, to make them successful, to get them bought in, to see the ROI, you know, you have a month to do that uh, before they can turn it off. So in retrospect, contracts would have just given both us and the customer a little bit more time to ease into things. Uh, and obviously, you know, you have much better results in terms of uh, reducing attrition. We had no coherent upsell strategy. Um, so we had poor pricing and packaging, you know, basically our, our middle edition was sort of too good. And there was no reason to move to higher editions. We didn't have a lot of science around our pricing and packaging. A really powerful force for SaaS startups or enterprise startups is when you can get to net negative churn. Uh, you know, when your net revenue retention is so high that the business is just growing as a result of it without even thinking about new bookings. We had to do everything, you know, with new bookings because we weren't moving customers through editions. We could have been much smarter at that. We were also much too efficient in sales. Like we loved our efficiency numbers. And the reality is we should have been much less efficient in sales because this was an evangelical market where you could go out and grab it. You know, people were, were sort of throwing money at this space for quite a while. And we, we were leaving money on the table by being overly efficient 
in terms of sales, in terms of number of reps making quota, quota too low, et cetera. And part of that relates to the next one where we, and frankly, I think everyone around us, you know, probably our competitors as well, you know, everybody, we underestimated the size of the market. I mean, this market is still growing fast 13 years later, right? Those four players that are in it, uh, those four players that I mentioned, they're all doing well, right? I think collectively, we all underestimated the size of the market. This often happens in enterprise software. So some takeaways, you know, embrace your constraints. Your business is going to have plenty of constraints. You know, we did, whether it was our geography, our experience, our funding, our R&D budget, embrace it. Think about how you can flip that around. Don't meet force with force, right? If someone's pushing, pull, right? If someone's pulling, push. Think about, you know, how do you flip one of your disadvantages into saying, hey, this is where I'm going to put a stake in the ground and my competitor can't go there with me, right? It's just too different from what they're doing. Control what you can control. There are going to be a ton of things you can't control. You can't control the economy. You can't control your timing. It's very rare that, you know, most founders have stories about how they started companies because they had some deep pain that they felt and now is the perfect time to solve it. And those stories are mostly BS, right? They're mostly for an interview. The reality for the most part is like you, you want to start a company and you sort of figure out exactly what it becomes along the way. You can't control your market timing. You can't control the economy. You can't control what your competitors do. You can control what happens within your four walls. And certainly corporate culture is the biggest thing uh, that you can have an influence on. And in fact, that's probably your main job as a CEO or as a co-founder. And then optionality can be a beautiful thing, right? If you, if you keep your options open, there are a lot of different things you can do. Eventually, you know, probably once you've raised a certain amount of money or a certain number of times, you sort of lock yourself into a certain path. Obviously, you can still be incredibly successful. You just have, you know, sort of one possible outcome, you know, as opposed to keeping more options on the table. So there are things that matter. You know, this graphic, we've seen lots of different versions of it. There are things that matter. There are things that you can control. Ultimately, you want to focus on the things, you know, where, there's, where that Venn diagram sort of, sort of meets in the middle. Visit dell.com forward slash Saster for exclusive savings on Dell products and more information about the Dell for Entrepreneurs program. Everything from Dell Financial Services to Dell Rewards, Dell for Entrepreneurs wants to help your business run smarter through technology.